He's been called the meteor that started the Civil War. But was he a freedom fighter or a domestic terrorist? I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War Podcast, we'll talk with historians Kevin Pollack and John Eric Gillot about their new Emerging Civil War series book, John Brown and the Raid on Harper's Ferry, today on the Emerging Civil War Podcast. It's battlefield season in central Virginia, and if you find yourself in the Fredericksburg area looking for a place to stay while you explore our rich history, I want to invite you to check out Stevenson Ridge. Stevenson Ridge is an 87-acre historic property on the Spotsylvania Courthouse Battlefield. We have 10 historic houses that have been rebuilt on the property and modernized to provide a fantastic bed and breakfast experience. So you can go out and explore the battlefields during the day and come home and relax in a unique and charming environment. You can find out information about our individualized cabins and our rate information at stevensonridge.com. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and we've got a like three for one tonight because not only do you have to put up with me, but we get Kevin Pollack and John Eric Gillow. Like this is just a, a double team of awesomeness. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So we're going to talk a little bit about your new book, John Brown and the Raid on Harper's Ferry. And let me just throw this right out to start with. Is he a freedom fighter or a domestic terrorist? Go, go, (laughs) go, go. I've I've made a, I've made a conscious decision not to try to change any hearts or minds because, you know, a lot of people have appropriated John Brown for, whatever cause they like so it, you know if, if we can just try to place brown within uh within his time then i'm i'm happy enough but i i don't want to come down on any one side of the argument uh, because i would have upset rob orison first of all <laughs> probably no matter which side i came down on um but no i uh i i i, I tried really hard not to insert myself and my own feelings um, about Brown, whatever they may be, okay. into our story here. All right. Kevin? I would uh, tend to, to agree with John Eric there. Uh, I hate to take you know option C out of all this, but I, I think what's interesting too is a lot of what's happened recently, especially in, well, really American and world history within the last 20 years where the word terrorism and terrorist has been used so much as a you know, form of warfare now that we've seen grow into the 21st century. It wasn't something that was really thought about much um, in the 19th century at all. And so I think some of what uh, we're, we're doing with Brown is sort of viewing him through a 21st century uh, prism as compared to how he would have been viewed by people uh, back in the 19th century um, as well. And I think Brown's style of, of warfare, I guess, if you want to call it that, was very unique and probably hasn't been seen by many people, no matter which century we're talking about, uh, in the sense that, yes, there was violence involved. Certainly, there's no doubt about that. But also, if you look at how Brown had treated some of the people that he would have considered to have been his enemies, uh, slaveholders during Brown's raid and whatnot, it's it's very different from what we might think of as somebody who's described as a uh, a terrorist. See, and yeah, I we, love that we, answer. We, <laughs> go, go ahead, John Eric. No, I, I was going to say that that's something that we try to do today. We try to make these 19th century figures fit our 21st century ideas of right and wrong. And, um, you know, especially with the the terrorist connotation, we mostly think about that as like religious fanatics, right? When you think of Osama bin Laden, these like kind of crazy religious people. And Brown was a very religious person. You know, the Bible guided his every thought and his every action is his parents were calvinists brown was a calvinist he was raised uh believing in this divine uh, predestination so when brown said you know that he was god's instrument to root out and destroy slavery like he really believed that and today when we think of these kind of fanatical kind of people you know we mostly associate that with you know like terrorism so i i think that's trying to make people fit our ideas today uh, is, is where that comes along. 
Um, but Brown hasn't been done any, hasn't been done any favors. Like, like in the, you know, like if you get, if you think back like to the 1950s and Santa Fe trail, you think of like Raymond Massey and like, it's kind of wild depiction of Brown. Like that's one generation. And then like the next generation might be like, you know, uh, what year did Ken Burns civil war come out? Um, late eighties, early nineties, late eighties, early nineties. Like that, that was my first introduction to him where you have, um, like Ed bars and David McCullough saying like, John Brown was a failure and, you know, six States and failed in everything he did. And, um, and then today, you know, people's, you know, the, the new generation's opinion of John Brown might be like Ethan Hawke and good Lord bird, um, which I loved. There's terrible history, but I loved it. Um, <laughs> so like he, he hasn't been done any favors. Uh, it's uh well and, and i intentionally posed the question as uh an inflammatory sort of either or uh, just to grab people's attention uh which is why i'm delighted with your answers you know because you know refusing to be pigeonholed into the either or and like hey we've got to look at some of these subtleties and complexities and 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 framings and and you know modern context versus historical versus memory and all that stuff so who is john brown because we've got a lot of layers to this onion um as you guys peel those layers away to write this book who did you find in the middle yeah so um you know, writing the book, you know, if I can jump in here, Kevin, um, you know, we kind of took like, uh, uh, you know, I took the first half of Brown's life or you know, most of uh, the first part of his life there from birth up to uh, the time of the raid up to, you know, stepping away from the Kennedy farmhouse. And then, you know, Kevin took him from the Kennedy farmhouse through the raid and uh, trial and the execution and, uh, you know, fallout and memory. And so we kind of tried to blend our two voices together with that. Um, but like I said, you know, Brown was born in 1800 in Connecticut, May 1800 in Connecticut. Um, like I said, you know, devout Calvinist, his father, uh, Owen Brown, was a uh, devout abolitionist. Uh, he removed the family over to Ohio in 1805. Um, but there he, you know, he uh, helped found the Western Reserve Anti-Slavery Society. He founded a church that was uh, kind of based on uh, anti-slavery acti activism. Um, but really, from a young age, he had learned to despise slavery. Uh, it, it, at, at a young age, he witnessed a slave about his own age that he felt was uh, poorly clothed and lodged in cold weather. And he saw that slave being beaten with uh, irons and shovels and anything that came to hand. And he said that that was the thing that really uh, turned him into uh, a devout abolitionist. Uh, a determined abolitionist, he said, and, and and it was that singular event that he kept coming back to later in his life that really made him, uh, as he said, swear an eternal war against slavery. Kevin, who did you discover as you peeled back the, the layers of the onion? Um, well, geez, I had to cover about six weeks of Brown's life as compared to, you know, John covering over uh, 50, nearly 60 years um, of his life. But I've been with Brown a long time and I've always joked having worked previously at Harper's Ferry that, that you can never escape John Brown now, um, that he's everywhere. And he, he truly was everywhere. He was somebody that traveled all across what was known as the United States and even beyond uh, into Kansas territory, of, territory, of course, um, before that. But Brown was somebody, I think, who was um, very much a man of purpose. And he knew, as John Eric just mentioned, from his earliest days, what his purpose was and what he believed it to be and was somebody who... Um, put everything he possibly could to a cause that he found to be just and, and righteous. Uh, and that of course was the extermination of, of slavery. And I think uh, Frederick Douglass perhaps said it, it best about Brown. And I think about Brown's character when Douglass had said that he could live for the slave, but John Brown could die for the slave. And that that was, to me, that really sums up Brown's ideas and, and Brown's, um, I hesitate to use the word extremism, but I think he was extreme at that time for, again, as Douglas said, being willing to go the extra mile for achieving what he believed to be his goal of, of ending slavery, uh, that Brown was willing to do a lot of things that a lot of people weren't willing to do at that time uh, to abolish slavery. No, yeah, I, I think I found, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I, I think I found, you know, a, a more complex character than, than, like I said, what we've been fed through the Raymond Massey's and Ethan Hawks and, uh, 
you know, like, like I said, my first introduction to Brown in the Ken Burns series was, you know, Ed Barr is saying, you know, John Brown, John Brown was a failure and everything in life. And it's, it's a really, you know, simplistic view of Brown. Everyone wants to chalk up his failures, but we don't talk about like the, the financial panics in like 1819 and 1837, where a lot of people, you know, struggled financially. Um, you know, your boy toy, Ulysses Grant, I mean, he declared bankruptcy a couple times, I think. And, you know, Matthew Brady and Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln, you know, all these people struggled financially, but uh, it's become like the, the sexy, you know, popular opinion that Brown was this great failure uh, when he actually gained, you know, some, uh, some kind of acclaim. Uh, you know, he, he had many business ventures, uh, but he, he wasn't such a failure at, um, he was a, a purveyor in wool and sheep and gained some real renown with that. And so he, he wasn't a failure in everything in life. And I, I don't want people to think that I'm, uh, you know, defending Brown with everything. That's certainly not the case. Um, but he, he's, he was a complex guy. And we've, I feel like we've been fed a, a very um, simplistic, sterile uh, depiction of him. So how is it a guy who is involved in a massacre in Kansas walking around free to be able to even, you know, lead into uh, to this attempted raid? Well, he grew that long beard. You know, Brown had 20 children between two wives. I've got two children with one wife and I'm, I'm on my way to this, this you know, gray beard that he had there. <laughs> no, he, he definitely spent the rest of his life literally uh, with a bounty on his head. So it wasn't like he goes out and, and does that in Kansas and come back and everyone's like, Oh yeah, that, that stuff. I mean, he's kind of living under a shadow after that. No, he, yeah. he assumed, he, he assumed some different identities. Uh, you know, Isaac Smith famously, uh, when he arrived at Harper's Ferry, um, Shubal Morgan, when he was in Kansas, he grew out the beard to help conceal himself. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Kevin, you want to say something there? Uh, and I think he, he obviously, and I'm sure we'll get into this more with the Secret Six and whatnot, but he had friends in high places that certainly helped. And also, I think as a precursor to what you'll see once Brown becomes a figurehead for the abolitionist movement is that most of that time brown is traveling throughout the north and um even into canada where he, i wouldn't say the majority of the population is sympathetic towards him um certainly but i think they're they're not as willing to uh go and and cash in on the, the price on brown's head as southerners are or border ruffians out in the kansas territory um as well so brown does travel back to kansas uh, a couple of times after his um, after the the Potawatomi massacre uh, and whatnot, but again, he does he does keep his head low, but he also has a lot of people to protect him, um, so to speak. Not saying he's walking around with bodyguards or anything like that, but again, he has friends in high places with deep pockets, and that helps out a lot, I think. So just yeah, he, for... he really go ahead. Oh, I just keep I just keep interrupting you. I, well, I was going <laughs> right ahead. No, he he really went back and forth between east and west for for several years, you know, raising money. Uh, recruiting his men. I think it was, was it uh, President Buchanan had offered like a $250 a bounty on his head and Brown quipped to the, you know, he'd give $2.50 for Buchanan's head. Um, so he, yeah, he was, he was playing into it at the same time. So, so for listeners who don't know, um, tell us a little bit about what the Potawatomi Creek massacre was and i keep wanting to say totopotomy creek you can tell my head's in the 1864 <laughs> overland campaign uh what what was the potomotomy creek uh, massacre yeah so potomotomy creek you know by this time uh we are out in kansas you know in 1854 you have the kansas nebraska act where it, it essentially leaves the kansas and nebraska territories open for popular sovereignty where um uh, you know, the, the settlers or uh, the property owners in those territories could decide uh, whether they would be admitted to the Union as free or slave states. And slaveholders had essentially ceded Nebraska, said, all right, you, you can have that. Uh, but with Kansas, we're going to draw our line in the sand. Uh, so you have, um, you know, uh, uh, free, free soil um, abolitionists coming in from uh, New England and the northern states, and you have uh, pro-slavery border ruffians coming in from Missouri, 
trying to settle these territories, get their votes in to get these state legislatures seated and to get the count or to get the states uh, admitted in, in each of their favors. Um, so Brown's family actually went out there in 1855 or several members of his family went out there and they felt like as soon as they arrived, as soon as they crossed over into Missouri, that they were marked for destruction. So they sent their father a letter back in New York. Brown was back with his family um, in North Elba, Timbuktu, uh, which was an African-American colony there that they were helping to launch. And they wrote to him that, you know, we need, we need guns more than we need bread. We need your help out here. So Brown went out into Kansas. You know, he had uh, commanded a militia company uh, several times in the, in the Wakarusa War in late 1855. Just missed out on the sacking of Lawrence in May of uh, 1856. Uh, he was on his way there when Lawrence was sacked, looted, um, and he he was incensed that this could happen. And so it was May 24th uh, when Brown directed the murder of uh, five pro-slavery men along Potawatomi Creek. Uh, he had his sons and a few other men there with him. Um, Brown did not actually wield uh, one of the famous broadswords in this attack, um, never admitted to it, to having any involvement. I would hate to, I, I don't even like the, the connotation there, but uh, comparing him to Charles Manson, uh, where I don't think Manson, did, I don't know if Manson murdered anyone, but he directed like his, his followers to commit um, those murders. And that was kind of Brown's role. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we like to, you know, we, I think popular media has made these men out as to be unoffending, um, that they were innocent people. Um, these were very pro-slavery men who were out there. Um, but I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm an, a brown apologist. Um, but definitely a very uh, brutal act out along the Potawatomi Creek. And like I said, Brown really spent the rest of his life with uh, a bounty on his head after this. Now, earlier you talked about, you know, our, our tendency these days to impose our modern interpretation on historical events. Um, and here we've got an instance where we've got political disagreement that is so intense that people resort to violence. And it's hard not to kind of see current events in some of those lights at times, which I think is a great reason to study history. It's like, okay, well, what happened? What lessons can we learn from that? And how can maybe that guide us today um, without necessarily imposing a particular interpretation uh, on what that might be? Um, so he he comes back to the east. Kevin, you referred earlier to the Secret Six, the friends in high places. Tell me a little bit about uh, who these friends are and how they help Brown as he uh, sort of shifts into his next phase. So the Secret Six was a name given to him later on, but it was a group of of six men, various backgrounds, all of course anti-slavery, um, wealthy men living throughout New England, New York State. That Brown had curried um, to, to get support for um, mainly financially, uh, financial support uh, from these men to pay for things like pikes, the famous John Brown pikes that he would uh, contract out for a thousand of those from a blacksmith um, in Connecticut. Uh, and, and these men sort of really were men that, again, had anti-slavery views, uh, but weren't willing to go so far as Brown was willing to go in order to to extinguish slavery or at least damage slavery um, in the Southern states. So that's hence the name of the secret six, why they remain behind the curtains while willing to uh, financially back Brown. And it, it got to a point uh, with these men where essentially uh, one of them, I can't remember, John Eric, you might remember if it was Higginson or, uh, or Stearns, basically just gave Brown, not a blank check, but gave him uh, a quite a bit of money and just said, basically, I don't want to know what you're doing with it, but just, just go yeah, ahead yeah. and take it and use it. Um, Brown, Brown got, he got perturbed at one point. He said, you know, that money comes easy enough. I can find the money, <laughs> which was not the case because he never had enough money. Yeah. Um, but he felt like, you know, people are willing to give me money, but they don't want to be seen with me or associated with me. They just want to throw money at me where he, he really needed the men. Uh, that's what it came down to. You know, at Harper's Ferry with these, you know, 21 men in this army, um, you know, he, he felt like it was much easier to get the money than it was the men. Now, I, I understand that Harriet Tubman was also involved at different points with uh, Brown's plans. Tell me a little bit about that. So yeah, he had, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. 
<laughs> I was going to say, you know, he, he had courted um, a lot of the, you know, what we would consider the abolitionist luminaries, uh, like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, uh, Sojourner Truth, William Lloyd Garrison, and he had tried to recruit Harriet Tubman to come up to um, Canada um, to the Chatham Convention. Um, that was in May uh, 1858, um, and he, he, really, he really thought that you know, having that the people of these stature associated with him um, would help his cause. And uh, ultimately, he called on a lot of people to join him up in Canada, and none of, not, not many of them really panned out. And uh, Harriet Tubman did not show up up there, but Brown was super impressed with her. Um, and he, you know, he, he was trying to call on friends in high places um, where he had them financially. He was trying to call on them also in the uh, uh, anti-slavery uh, abolitionist field as well, and they it didn't pan out as well for him. And he, you know, he called on Frederick Douglass again in August of 1859, just a few months before the raid. And Douglass said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. You're going into a perfect steel trap, uh, as he described it uh, several decades later. And it, it turned out to be so. So Brown still thinks this is going to be a good idea, um, or is he kind of fatalistic about it as he gets ready to? march on the arsenal at harper's ferry i would have to think that brown certainly had had built in a uh, a plan b if you will that you know maybe this thing was going to go haywire and that uh if if brown's plan ended up not working these lightning raids coming out of the allegheny mountains to to go in and basically financially undermine the institution of slavery that's what brown was trying to do with this raid while of course gathering weapons uh, to the tune of there were about 100,000 firearms stored at Harper's Ferry when Brown struck in October of 1859. Um, but I, I think Brown went in with the idea thinking that his plan would actually work. Um, that, But also, I do think that there was a, again, almost a plan B that Brown had envisioned that, hey, if this doesn't work and I'm captured um, alive, that I can be more valuable as a martyr uh, and, and being executed, being publicly hanged. Um, and the thing that Brown, in my opinion, I think, you know, if, if Brown had been killed at Harper's Ferry in October of 1859, uh, there'd still probably be books out about him, certainly. But where Brown really makes his name, makes a name for himself is the last six weeks of his life. When he's in jail uh, and in the courtroom in the seat of Jefferson County in Charlestown, Virginia at the time, today West Virginia. And that's where Brown I think really starts to understand what he can be to the anti-slavery movement and to the abolitionist movement. Um, and this was something Brown recognized early on. He's interviewed by a newspaper correspondent in uh, shortly following the Pottawatomie Creek massacre in Kansas. And Brown then travels throughout the North and I think sees the, the power of the press, frankly, and how he could rally people to his cause or not rally people to his cause, but at least use the press to get his own views out there. Um, and that's ultimately, I don't want to get too far, too far ahead of the story, but uh, Brown's speech that he gives on November 2nd, 1859, when he is told that he is going to be hanged uh, a month from now, December 2nd, is later compared by some to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And, you know, that's something that, that Brown uses well. He uses the, the written and spoken word more so than a Sharps carbine that he goes into Harper's Ferry with to win people to his side and and i think he probably had that in the back of his mind that that could be a good um good plan as well in case things did not succeed and did not go the way he wanted them to go in harper's ferry all right we're going to take a short break when we come back more from kevin and john eric on the emerging civil war podcast and i'm going to pause this here just for a second because i heard uh maxwell go out the door and i'm not sure that uh oh, what he's doing hold on <laughs> i got your text i uh i think i'll be good for gettysburg yeah if you don't want to stay both days that's fine uh, okay i, I, just I, gotta, I don't know if you I don't have to work on monday. Okay. uh no i'm planning on not working on monday that's my i goal. didn't know if rob so. was coming up i haven't heard anything about what anybody is doing so i really don't have any idea okay. but i i emailed sarah today and said that you and i were interested in doing something with the heritage center whatever that may yeah be. I, I told her you know, we definitely do a book signing and if you 
you know, if you want to do a lecture, I told her if there was any time on the second, you know, the, you, know, you and I could do one too. Okay. Yeah. That sounds good to me. That works. I think with, you know, like with these lectures or Zooms or whatever we do, we just kind of do it like the book where like, you know, I'll take, you know, Brown up to the Kennedy farmhouse or so. And then if you want to take him from there uh, through the raid and mm -hmm. all that. Yeah, that sounds good. And that's what I was going to say. The presentation that I sent you was obviously is pretty much the the raid itself. Uh, yeah, it's pretty heavily the raid. So we can tweak that a little bit uh, as need be. You're probably a better graphic design guy than I am as far as PowerPoint. So if you want to switch anything up, feel free to. Okay. Uh, all right. Sorry. Uh-oh. So he just let the dog out because the dog was barking and he thought the dog was... <laughs> bothering me up here and being too noisy what a nice kid i know very thoughtful but in the meantime, <laughs> he's outside and attending yeah i know right <laughs> so john eric you were about to pick something up um tell me what you were going to say and i'll cue you up as we come back from our from our break here so i was going to put in a little plug for um and maybe i shouldn't because it's, it doesn't exist yet but emerge or the emerging civil war what if volume two no, I was going to ask you guys about that actually. So that would be fine. okay. Okay. All right. So, um, all right, here we go. And we're back in the Emerging Civil War podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski. Joining me today, Kevin Pollack and John Eric Gillot, my colleagues who have written a new book for the Emerging Civil War series called John Brown and the Raid on Harper's Ferry. And uh, John Eric, I know that you, you kind of about to chime in there on something Kevin was just talking about before the break, um, where Kevin talks about this you know, idea that John Brown becomes something in his last six weeks and, and maybe he could have been more, um, but if he'd been actually killed during the raid, he wouldn't have been able to achieve kind of his quote unquote full potential. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, we, both Kevin and I, uh, we have essays coming out in the forthcoming, right, Chris? Forthcoming. Forthcoming, uh, volume two, of the great what ifs of the American Civil War uh, from uh, the Emerging Civil War series. Um, but you know, in, in that book, uh, Kevin and I make kind of a point counterpoint where I look at, you know, what if Brown had escaped from Harper's Ferry? What might his plans have been? What might have happened? And as Kevin alluded to there, uh, you know, Kevin looked at, you know, what would have happened had Brown uh, been killed at Harper's Ferry? Uh, what might have changed there where he becomes an immediate martyr um, rather than having, you know, the next several weeks of his life, the next six weeks or so, uh, where he uh, has that bully pulpit a little bit. Um, and so, you know, you know, I I look at, as Kevin had alluded to, kind of that economic warfare where Brown had hoped for these lightning strikes where he could fall on these farms or plantations in the night and steal away with their slaves and fall back into the mountains, kind of shuttling them up through the Cumberland Valley and north into freedom. Um, but he, you know, Brown was very familiar with the Harper's Ferry area. He had surveyed there uh, around 1840, I think it was. And he admitted later in life that, you know, most of the time he wasn't surveying. He was looking at this area as a means of shuttling slaves north to freedom. He saw these natural corridors and, and these forts in the mountains where he thought that uh, a smaller number of his men uh, and, and, and escaped slaves could fight and defend themselves against anyone that came after them. And he felt like uh, his time in Kansas had proved that this could work where he was, you know, fighting um, against a greater number of people with a smaller number of men. Um, and uh, in late 1858, where he, he took his raid into Missouri and liberated 11 slaves, uh, he saw those slaves uh, armed and fighting for their freedom at the Battle of the Spurs, which happened near Holton, Kansas. Um, so th this idea that he had of smaller number of men fighting from fortified positions and uh, escaped slaves fighting for their freedom, he saw all that happen in Kansas and he felt like it could work in Harper's Ferry. But he felt like this version of, of economic warfare uh, along the Upper South where uh, he could destabilize the slave uh, economy, essentially. He felt that if he could drive slavery out of one county um, in Maryland, that he, or in, in Virginia, I'm sorry, that he could weaken it uh, throughout the entire state and thereby weaken it throughout the South. Um, so he did have plans. You know, his, his plan certainly wasn't to be captured at Carpus Ferry. Now, that did not work into his plans. Um, but, you know, the, the I, it, it was interesting uh, for this forthcoming book looking at 
you know, what might have happened had he made it out? And how might have things uh, played out differently had he been killed there? Terry Bisson has a really interesting book uh, written in, in 1988 called Fire on the Mountain, where uh, Brown actually does get up into the mountains with some of his supporters and holds out and succeeds and uh, kind of interesting speculative fiction uh, as a result of that. Uh, Kevin, you talked about a few minutes ago that, um, you know, Brown sort of comes into his own when he's in the courtroom, when he's in jail. Uh, the, that last six weeks of his life. And, and you know, you've both sort of talked about your first exposure to Brown, and mine was in that old TV miniseries, The Blue and the Gray. Uh, and I remember John Brown in the courtroom and his deep, resonant voice and the crimes of this country purged by blood, you know, and how stirring that was. Um, and so I can kind of see, you know, when you say that that's his, his becoming moment. Um, it certainly was for me watching it on TV. What does he become? You know, what What do those six weeks do for him? I think Brown becomes a martyr. He he goes from a lot of people, certainly, he, of course, he doesn't have many friends in the South uh, at all by what he's done in Harper's Ferry. But in his weeks later, uh, in, in the last six weeks of his life, he gains at least some respect in the South, not respect for what he was doing, uh, but just respect for I mean, John Wilkes Booth, who witnesses Brown's execution, talks about seeing Brown and how stoically he's he's taking all of this, that Brown is not afraid to stand up and to die for what he believes in. And, and Southerners, I think, respected that. Many did. Uh, again, not to say that they like Brown at all, but they at least came to respect uh, his convictions and that he was a man of, of convictions. Throughout the North, I think in the last six weeks of his life, he would become truly a martyr. Um, and a, a symbol for the anti-slavery movement. Uh, again, not all abolitionists or anti-slavery men were in favor of the means by which Brown tried to abolish slavery uh, throughout the United States. But after Brown's speech, especially on November 2nd, 1859, where he, he calls on God and calls on the Bible and says, you know, basically evokes the golden rule of, of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, things like that. Brown, it, it gets to the point where throughout the North, uh, people, shops are closed on December 2nd, 1859 at the hour when, when Brown is going to, to dangle at the end of a rope. Uh, church bells toll throughout the North, marking the hour of, of Brown's last breath as his body is being taken back to North Elba by his wife. There are people coming out to, to see him or to, to see the, the casket being moved from one train to the next or being moved closer and closer to Brown's final resting place uh, at North Elba. And, and then by chance, what that then does is the South sort of leaps onto this and starts trying to attach Brown to these radical abolitionists, to the Republican Party, um, as well. They try uh, attaching Brown, especially to William Seward, who at this point is the, the leading candidate, it seems, for the Republican nomination coming up in the election of 1860. And it's ultimately going to be a speech that Lincoln gives in New York City at the Cooper Union that's going to almost catapult Lincoln into the, uh, the lead for the Republican nomination in 1860 when he disassociates the Republican Party from um, from Brown uh, and his actions. And so what you see is sort of a, a ping pong game going back and forth with, with the North as Brown in their hands and the South is trying to use that against them and they'll volley back and fire back at the South and the South will fire back as well. Um, Edmund Ruffin, of course, is, is also going to play into this. He's going to take the, some of the, uh, the pikes that are captured that Brown has had made for, to arm slaves with and he's going to send one to each southern governor saying that this is what awaits you from your northern brethren things like that so brown is really going to be used by both sides um, because of not only his raid but the the trial that takes place in his execution as well to to uh fuel the flames of their cause of their respective cause whatever that might be yeah brown really uh, he started to understand the power of the press from his time in Kansas, where he was granting interviews and uh, both, you know, for and against him. He he was he was seeing how it kind of uh, helped to shape his notoriety. Um, and, and you know, absolutely, uh, you know, he was using that bully pulpit um, you know, from the courthouse in Charlestown. Um, and, you know, we there, there's a lot of great material. Uh, to draw on from this time period, whether it's editorials in newspapers or, uh, you know, 
it, it really reduced the margins of neutrality at this time. Everyone kind of after John Brown, you had to kind of take a side at that point. Uh, here was a white man who was uh, going to his death uh, over slavery. And so that those, you know, those dinner table conversations, it, it really reduced that margin of neutrality. Having read uh, a lot of the newspaper coverage of the trial and the editorials um, around his arrest and his imprisonment, uh, obviously some strong feelings. And, you know, even, you know, more than 160 years later, we know that this was a really polarizing event. But to actually read the prose in those papers, I mean, some of it is just venomous in ways that um, – are shocking even to me as as a journalism professor who's read a lot of partisan newspapers. Um, people had really strong feelings of this. Um, does that in some way calcify public opinion in a way that does lead to the war? Is this really a, a direct connection or is it just sort of one more step in the escalation? Yeah, Ke Kevin, what was the one the great quote that you found uh, it was someone in South Carolina, maybe where the guy said that he wanted to do nothing more than to kill a John Browner or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so it was a North Carolinian that North said, uh, yeah, that said, you know, he would, he would travel a hundred miles to go and kill a John Brown man. Um, things like that. There's a, a New York newspaper. I can't remember which one. I think it's the Herald that says uh, Brown's raid and Brown's death has done more than any other event in our history to push the country towards disunion. Um, I, I've always hesitated to say, you know, that that Brown's raid is the final straw because ultimately, you know, there's still going to be um, I got to do math real quick in my head, which I'm not good at as a historian. Uh, but about a year and a half, roughly, until the first true shots of the war are fired in, in Charleston, South Carolina, though some people would argue the first shots were fired in Harper's Ferry in October of 1859. Um, there's there's still a lot that can go on. But Brown's raid, I think, like John Eric said, really starts to set the battle lines, if you will. Uh, Governor Henry Wise of Virginia, immediately after this, is sending up the best rifles that Virginia has in its state armories and arsenals to the northern border of the state to prevent what they call another invasion. So this is very much a gearing up for war uh, by, by the South. Uh, and, and that is shown in no better place than the, the abundance of militia that's there um, around Brown at the gallows, 1500 Virginia militia are there. The town is basically under martial law uh, at that point. Uh, there are cannons pointed directly at Brown's cell to make sure that he doesn't escape or that people don't try to get him out. So this is where the, the militarization of the South really starts to become serious. Once they see that no longer are these words and uh, fights that are breaking out on the floors of, of the Senate, but now somebody, like John Eric said, specifically a white man is willing to bring the war to the South over the issue of slavery. Since you mentioned the militia, I, of course, have to mention Stonewall Jackson leading the Corps of Cadets from VMI to uh, help oversee the execution uh, since being a Jackson fanboy, got to work him in there. I know it was really interesting during the course of my research here. Um, I ordered some of the uh, militia pay records from the uh, Virginia Historical Society uh, or you know, where, wherever in Richmond that has these records, but I found uh, that I had an ancestor who was present at the execution as a member of uh, one of the Virginia militia companies that I had. I had no idea about this person, about his involvement in the militia, but I, uh, I found his, his name there on the payroll. These, these militia were paid by the state for their service in Charlestown, and I found his name there and started researching back and found that I was related to this guy. I couldn't believe it. He later went on. It, it, a year later, he moved out to Iowa, and he was captain of uh, an infantry company from Iowa during the Civil War. Um, but I, it, it was a fascinating connection uh, to the story that I had no idea. And that this particular company uh, were placed uh, directly in front of the gallows. They had a front row seat uh, to Brown's execution. Uh, so interesting personal connection that I found. And I want to ask you about that because you have several personal connections to this story uh, and to Harper's Ferry and to this book that uh, I think make it uh, particularly cool for me as an editor to know that this this personal connection exists. Tell us a little bit about why Harper's Ferry 
is of particular interest to you and how that led you to this book? Well, I, you know, I grew up in a, a very uh, historic small town in southeastern Ohio where the, the whole town is a national historic district. You can walk down that main street and it feels very much um, like you are back in the 1850s or 1860s. It's a very intact historic district. And I went to Harbors Ferry for the first time in 1997. And I felt that I felt that same thing. Like Harbors Ferry is like a place where you know, time has been frozen. You can walk down that street and essentially it looks as it did um, you know, at the time Brown was there, time of the Civil War. And I just I, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, it, Harper's Ferry, most people, you know, you want to go, you want to retire at the beach or some warm climate or something. I have visions of one day finding myself in Harper's Ferry. Uh, don't tell my wife I said that. Um, but, but you know, it, it, it's I, I've I had a chance to visit there many, many times over the years. Um, someplace that was very, that remains very important to me. Um, but I wanted it to be important to, to my wife or my future wife. So when I uh, decided I wanted to propose to my wife. I took her to Harper's Ferry, and I, I, you know, I had joked with her before that I might ask her to marry me on some battlefield. I don't know if she actually believed me, but I, I wanted her to feel some kind of connection to that place too. Uh, so we hiked up to Maryland Heights. She had to make that hike up the mountain, so she earned it, and uh, I proposed to her there. And so now, when I ask her if she wants to go back to Harper's Ferry, she doesn't mind it so much. She doesn't tell me no. Um, <laughs> well, well my, played. My girls, well played. my girls like it because they they associate Harper's Ferry with ice cream. So when we had it, when, when we went there, we had ice cream. And so they think it's this place with great ice cream. But so I I, I want them to feel some kind of connection uh, with the place as well. Uh, I have the opportunity to travel through that area. Uh, many times a year for work, so I'm I'm constantly over uh, in that area, and I feel very much at home there, uh, even though I I haven't lived there, but hopefully someday will. So then, what led the two of you from from that connection to this book? Well, I feel like it was the only topic that Chris Mikowski hadn't tackled in his 327 other books. I felt like this was a safe one. <laughs> and so um, he was going to get to yeah. it because of the Jackson connection eventually. That's right. So, right. Yeah. Right. We had to get it before he did. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I became involved with ECW as a, a guest contributor back in 2017. And, and that continued for a while in 2018 or 2019, whenever I uh, finally came on board. Um, but I, I, I think I knew early on that if I was going to do anything for the Emerging Civil War series, um, it had to at least start with John Brown, um, a story that you know I'd been interested in since childhood, since visiting there, uh, since coming home and finding that one of Brown's raiders had lived just a few miles down the road um, from my hometown, a Dangerfield newbie. Um, so I, I feel like I had so many connections that it's, it's it was the logical place for me to start. And, um, you know, I had looked up to Kevin. I say that Kevin being younger. Than <laughs> I had looked up to Kevin as a historian um, for several years there. I'm watching uh, the Emerging Civil War Symposium on C-SPAN and, um, you know, everything that he had accomplished by that point. Um, as uh, an Antietam guide and as a historian for emerging civil war that I felt like you know, if I was going to hitch my uh, my wagon to a horse or anything, it would be with Chris Mikowski and Kevin Pollack. And um, so, you know, when I had decided that you know, this might be the, the place for me to start, I think Kevin uh, had the same idea for a book. And so we got together and uh, decided to uh, co-author or tag team this one. Kevin, uh, is, that, John... is that about how it went, Kevin? Yeah, that sounds that sounds right to me. I, I would agree with that. It, it was a fun ride. Um, it, it really was. And it was kind of a story coming at a, a bit differently. I had the uh, privilege of living in Harper's Ferry on a couple of different occasions. And I can remember that's where I really uh, got to cut my teeth as a public historian, uh, as an intern with the National Park Service there. And I can remember uh, many nights living right in, in Lower Town Harper's Ferry and being able to literally look out of my bedroom window and I could see the top of the monument marking the original location of uh, John Brown's fort and could see the, the cupola of the fort in its current location as well and just being able to walk around Harper's Ferry at night when there were no visitors and it was just quiet and it was just me in the streets and, and the history. It was just a, a really incredible feeling. Um, and I also felt that the... Uh, 
the Emerging Civil War series was a great way to tell Brown's story because I think a lot of people know about Brown, uh, certainly, but I don't think a lot of people are willing to pick up, which is perfectly fine, uh, pick up a 500-page book about John Brown and about his raid to really understand that. So, um, you know, with, with a lot of John Eric's help, we were able to make this accessible, hopefully, uh, to more people, not just with the book itself, but with the tour guide. Uh, two tours that we built in at the end, a walking tour of Lower Town Harpers Ferry of sites related to the raid and then a uh, driving tour as well. So it was really just seemed like a long time coming that I was bound to to uh, hitch my horse, if you will, to John Brown at some point. And I really I like that, how uh, the walking tour actually has on there site where John Eric got engaged, ice cream shop for the girls, right? That's or do we take that? I, I hope that Kevin, you know, the, the fun ride part of it was living in Harper's Ferry because it certainly wasn't writing this book during a pandemic with all of the research facilities closed and with my children, you know, hanging around my ankles uh, as I'm as I'm trying to write here you know, during uh you know the, the lockdown period from like you know, March through June or, or May or whenever that was in 2020. Uh, this was, it, it, it was an interesting experience uh, writing my first book during a global pandemic. Uh, maybe maybe yeah, if I could strike, uh, oh, sorry, Chris. Uh, maybe if I could strike from the minutes that it was a fun ride and say it was a wild ride instead. How's that? <laughs> it was a wild ride. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, so, you but know. But eventually, eventually the, uh, you know, Research facilities reopened. We were able to get a, a lot of good stuff out of the West Virginia Archives and History in Charleston. Um, but, you know, during the pandemic, while things were closed, we were able to make do with a lot of the really good uh, digital material that was out there, from things like the Boyd Stutler Collection um, and all of the great books and stuff that have been digitized on Google Books and Internet Archives. So um, it, it wasn't a wash during that lockdown. Uh, in that pandemic period, we did get a lot of good stuff done. And I would be really happy if I would try to steal a few minutes here and there to work on the book, like before my daughters woke up or after they went to bed. And I'd feel great about myself if I was sitting down on my computer at 5 a.m. to start writing. And I would open up like our shared documents and just find that Kevin had been there since four o'clock. Like his time management is just, it's incredible. I'm envious. <laughs> My time management is only good from about four to six in the morning. And then after that, it all goes to hell. He goes to bed about eight o'clock at night. So we're, yeah. we're coming up on Kevin's bedtime here. Coming up on his bedtime here. Yeah. Yeah, the, your first book, John Eric. Uh, Kevin, you've written several books prior to this. And uh, so, you know, you, you've cut your teeth. But uh, John Eric, you know, first book under trying circumstances. How does it feel now that it's done? was so long ago that we worked on it <laughs> like I I almost feel like I'm tired of talking about John Brown at this point <laughs> um, and I could never be tired of talking about John Brown but I've started to think about other projects at this point um, but you know yeah seeing um, seeing your name on the cover of a book I had the opportunity to contribute to several essay books and, and magazine articles and things like that over the years but seeing your name on front cover of a book is something special and, and to be able to do it with Kevin, someone I, I respect so much, um, it, it, that made it uh, a really good experience. Feeling is mutual. Thank you. It, it is always exciting seeing your name uh -huh. on, on a cover. Yeah. So um, dare I ask what's next? Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, gosh, where to begin? Yeah, you've got um, your hands in like 16 different fires, I know. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't really know exactly what the next um, big project is that I want. I've got a few smaller ones trying to wrap up uh, in the meantime, but um, definitely turning back to doing some Maryland campaign writing. Um, you know, that's John Brown. The John Brown book was my first book outside of the Maryland campaign. So that was kind of unique to show that I can do more. I'm more than a one trick pony. Um but getting back to the Maryland campaign, I think, and, and doing some research um, and, and just continuing to really just get into some research uh, is what I really enjoy. Uh, the writing part comes a little hard to me at times, and uh, the research is what I what what gets me out of bed in the morning, early in the morning. Uh, very, very early. Stuff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing some uh, some fantastic stuff with the Antietam Institute in particular and the work with the Antietam Guide. So I just want to give you a shout out for, for what you're doing with them and, and the way you're helping those guys really just go gangbusters right now. Uh, and uh, a lot of really cool publications. So congratulations with your work there. 
Thank you. I'm just one small cog in the uh, in the greater machinery of it all. <laughs> John Eric, thoughts uh, about what you might be up to next? Oh, I'm laboring under so many deadlines, either self-imposed or from people like Chris Mikowski. Um, I'm such a you know I I'm such I've, I've started. I've started to gather um, some sources for, I think, what my next book will be. I haven't started writing yet, and we'll leave that uh, for another time. But I've started to pull together some of my resources where maybe later this year, once I clear a little bit off my plate, um, then I'll think about uh, maybe putting pen to paper and, and starting book number two. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, I expect great things from both of you. Um, the, the book, John Brown and the Raid on Harper's Ferry, just an excellent addition to the literature, great introduction to the story, well-written, um, great pictures, all those sorts of things. Uh, congratulations to both of you on an excellent book. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for the help along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we couldn't have done it without Ian Mikowski. So yeah. thanks for all the help and thanks for having us here. <laughs> Thank you both for being with us. Uh, for Kevin Pollack and John Eric Jalow, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War podcast. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. And before we wrap up for the day, let me remind you, please like, please share, please subscribe. Help us to spread the gospel of the Civil War by letting other people know about the Emerging Civil War podcast. Thanks today to Jackson Mikowski, our engineer, for piecing together our sound elements. Thanks to Sarah K. Byerly and Edward Alexander for their work behind the scenes on the podcast. And thanks to the Second South Carolina String Band for providing our theme music. You can find them on Facebook and on YouTube. Search for Second South Carolina String Band. And don't forget to join us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. We've got more than 30 historians who provide free content every day. Great conversation with a lot of brilliant emerging minds in the field. We want to have you as part of that conversation. Join us at EmergingCivilWar.com. For Kevin Pollack and John Eric Gillow, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>